Thank you so much, Don and Marilyn, to start us off in Advent season. And if you'll take your copy of the Word and turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Miss Marilyn read this to you, but it will be our focal text for this morning's time. The title of the sermon is Born a Child and Yet a King. One of the things I love so much and like so much about Christmas, among many things, is the carols that we sing. And we were able to do that uh, the last 30 minutes or so. We were able to lift our voices to the Lord as a body and sing songs from angels we have heard on high to silent night. Such a thrill to sing these songs with the saints of God. However, it is now the case that most of the precious Advent songs that we sing together as a congregation are fading. They're losing popularity in our hyper-modern post-Christian era that we live in. Billboards posted its top 25 of 2015 Christmas songs, and guess what? Only one song out of all 25 was explicitly a Christian song, and it was Mary Did You Know. That's a good one. A few years ago, I was looking at this list several years ago, And there was only one, again, in the top 25, and guess what it was? Little Drummer Boy. And for most of us, when we hear that, we're thinking, what does this actually mean when we listen to Little Drummer Boy? But it was explicitly religious in nature. But Mary, did you know, is a pickup over the last five or ten years in that regard. When you consider the top ten for this year, all I want for Christmas is you, was number one. Nothing about, that's by Mariah Carey, nothing about the Lord whatsoever. Number two is Rocking Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee. Three is a Christmas song by Nat King Cole. Have a Holly Jolly Christmas by Burl Ives. And of course, number five was Mary, Did You Know? Even Madonna a few years ago hit the top 25 with her rendition of Santa Baby, whatever that means, okay? The most provocative title that I saw, though, looking through this is... Uh, came in a few years ago at number 23 by Band Aid called Do They Know It's Christmas? Well, I think, yes, the world knows it's Christmas. They just don't know the why or the what of Christmas. And that's what I hope you will come to understand through this particular sermon series. This Sunday, I'm going to preach the candle of prophecy, born a child and yet a king. Next week, Brother David Miller will be preaching. And you don't want to miss that. And he's going to preach the candle of deity out of Hebrews chapter 1. So I hope that you will be here for that. But what a difference 2,000 years makes from the angels proclaiming great news given to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill Toward men. I like the ESV. It says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth among those, peace on earth among those to whom He is pleased. That's really the translation upon whom's favor His pleasure rests. So, because you sometimes you think about that, it's an oxymoron to say peace on earth because we've never had peace on earth, right? Well, you do when you know Jesus, right? So when His favor rests on you, no matter what's going on in the world, you have peace with God. Now, I hold it to be somewhat of of an absurdity 
to think that Christmas actually, or the Advent actually took place on December 25th. That's not the case. Okay, that has an entirely popish origin. Y'all know what popery is? Popishness, the rise of the papacy. That's how, that has Catholic overtones, which has nothing to do with Christianity. He was not born on December 25th, I can promise you that. But you know, I would love to celebrate 10 to 20 days on the incarnation of Jesus Christ in a given year. Wouldn't you? Why don't just do it every Sunday to think about the coming of the Lord Jesus to this earth. So this morning I want us to step back in time and get a running start and listen to a prophecy that was made 750 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Micah, at times, is a hard prophet to understand because he is moving and alternating between threats of doom and promises of hope. And it's kind of hard, situationally, to figure out with Old Testament understanding which one he's speaking of and how to deal with the doom and how does that relate to his thematic structure in his book. But the fact of the matter is, it's okay to think that it was doom and gloom because the book is arranged that way because always in the midst of our deepest depression or despair or seemingly no hope whatsoever, that's when God shows up. And so that's what's happening in Micah. There's this vacillating between doom and uh, uh, glory on the horizon. And the focus this morning is not on the gloom, but on the greatest promise that's ever been given in the Word of God. The Messiah will come from heaven to Bethlehem in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And this person will dwell with his people. And you know, I could go on back to Genesis 3.15, of which Miss Marilyn read, or we could go back to Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, where we have the promise of one greater than Moses coming. We could go to a lot of places, but just taking consideration how the Bible says that he will come out of the lineage of David, and this king will sit upon his throne, and is of, of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so, Isaiah is a contemporary with Micah, and Isaiah reminds us that he is the mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And in the Hebrew, a wonder of a counselor. We're reminded in Isaiah 9, 6 of that. So to get Micah's understanding of the future glory of our God, you've got to go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as he predicts the coming of the Messiah. Let's talk about Jesus this morning. Right? Matter of fact, don't you love that interchange between Mary and Martha? You know that story when Martha is serving? That's her gift. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha gets a little upset about the fact that Mary wasn't doing the dishes. And Jesus said to Martha that Mary has desired the greater part. This one thing she desired. We ought to think about that at Christmas, right? that you desire nothing more than to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. To bow before Him, I love those words. This one thing is needed, is what Jesus says to Martha. This one thing is needed, and so we need to reflect on the Lord Jesus. Now, let's break this text down. Look at verse 2 of Matthew chapter 5. The Bible says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So first, let's talk about where he came from. And it's pretty easy. He came from eternity. Now folks, Jesus is not a Johnny-come-lately. There's never been a time when the Son of God did not exist. And do you see from this passage that the one who is coming is from old, from eternity. He has not been secret and he has not been silent up to this point in history. I hope you realize that. That newborn baby in Bethlehem worked wonders in this world before he ever came to Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, John 1 tells you that Jesus created the worlds. And so here is the Son of God, and He's identified with the Ancient of Days. He's identified with coming from old. Remember that that infant slumbering in His mother's arms was the ancient God of eternity who spoke the very world into existence. Now, people talk about miracles such as the resurrection and the miracle of salvation to save your soul. Folks, I don't think any miracle compares to the miracle of God becoming a man. What's a resurrection in comparison to God being born as a man? Nothing compares to the incarnation of the Lord God. For if it's not the case, the resurrection means nothing. If he wasn't the God-man, you're still in your sins. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is futile. John 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and He was God. The Bible tells us all things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And we're talking about the Son of God. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you remember this verse. The Bible tells us that for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for our sakes He became poor, that through His poverty we might become rich. When it says He was rich, what's it referring to? Well, it's referring to the fact that way before He was a baby in a manger, He was the king upon a throne. That's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the one who has come from eternity. Before he came to planet earth, he sat in splendor on a magnificent royal throne while shining seraphim hung upon every word. Legions of angels waited anxiously upon him to do whatever he asked them to do. He not only controlled the universe, he owns the universe. He existed with his father way before he ever existed in the womb of his mother. As a matter of fact, when the Son of God was born on earth, he was as old as his heavenly father and much, 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 much infinitely older than his mother. He's the only person, the only human being who ever spoke intelligently about his coming before he was ever born. Read it in Hebrews chapter 10. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do the will of my Father. He was saying that as he was zipping through time and space in order to be conceived in Mary's womb and born in Bethlehem. How many people do you know that can talk intelligently about their birth before they're ever born? That's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the Lord of glory. He is the pre-existent, co-eternal, co-existent, 
consubstantive God. He is the same substance of God the Father. Notice this, this little baby born in Bethlehem who grew up in Nazareth could point to the hundreds of billions of galaxies, the hundreds of billions of stars. He could point to the sun and the moon and every square foot of planet Earth and say, mine. All the computers, all the calculators, all the accountants in the world can never measure the wealth of the Son of God. Imagine trying to figure out the wealth of someone who is omnipresent and omniscient, right? You can't measure that. Before he came to Bethlehem, the Bible says here, he was from of old. He is the ancient of days. He was a king whose rule was unquestioned, unparalleled, and unending. He never knew a single moment where he did not have praise and honor and glory that bathed him in all of his eternity past. This was a situation. So get this in your mind. When it comes to the Advent, do they know it's Christmas? Why and what for? The one who we celebrate at Christmas is the one who came from eternity. He had no beginning. He has no end. He's the Son of God. Notice the passage. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clan, clans, from you shall come forth to me. He came from heaven, from eternity, to come down. But the Bible says he came to the house of bread. How many of you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Isn't it fitting that the bread of life would come down to the house of bread? Mm, that's not an accident, is it? But where he came to, he came to Bethlehem. God contrasts the splendor of his glory with the littleness of Bethlehem. Note the text. It says, you're the smallest of the clans, yet God chooses this magnificent Messiah to come to a small place. Why? Well, one answer is that David was a Bethlehemite, right? That's where David was from, and Christ was born out of the lineage, humanly, of David. So that's one reason. But I want to remind you, but the major point of the text is that Bethlehem is small. It's, it's little, it's small, and God chooses something small. He chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and He does something there that changes the course of all of history and eternity. And he chooses something that is small. Why? Because when he acts in this way, we can't, bait, we can't boast in the merits of men. I mean, if he would have been born in the royal palace in Egypt or anywhere else, we could have easily said, huh, that's the way God acts. He, he's just a, a hedonist and he just wants his own pleasure. And he just, he's, oh, that's the way we think it would be. But we can't say, well, of course, he set his favor on Bethlehem. No, we couldn't say that because look at the human glory of Bethlehem. Why? Because it achieved absolutely nothing. And by the way, that's what you add to your salvation. Absolutely nothing. You can't save yourself. Think about this. All we can say with God being born in Bethlehem is our God is so incredibly, wonderfully free. He's going to do exactly what He does and we can't be impressed with our bigness. He does nothing in order to attract attention to our accomplishment. He does everything to magnify his glorious freedom and mercy. When he chose a replacement for King Saul, 
he sent Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem. When he chose the son of Jesse, he set his favor on the youngest and not the oldest. When, he, when, he, when God chose a man to defeat a nine-foot-nine giant, he chose David and he chose a slingshot. Right? Something small. Why? Because, as he says through David, here's what he said, that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give it into your hand. Do you know, folks, God is not the least bit dependent on human greatness or achievement. Paul says, God, our God, chose the foolishness. God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being will ever boast in His presence. He came from eternity, and He came to Bethlehem. Incidentally, our verse that we quoted earlier fits so well here, doesn't it? He was rich, and yet for our sakes, He became poor that through His poverty we might become rich. And again, I think the greatest of all miracles is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. To think that the God of glory would condescend and come down to this earth and take on our stinking human flesh is the miracle of all miracles. When they were building the Transcontinental Railroad in in the 19th century, most of you probably know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, locomotives put forth so much smoke that the downwind side of the tracks on the cars was so less desirable and generally was going to be on the poor side of town. And that's where we get the phrase, the wrong side of the tracks. Let me tell you, folks, when the Lord God of eternity left His throne in heaven, He went from the right side of the tracks with all His splendor and glory and came to be born on the wrong side of the tracks. And he did all of that for us. When he left heaven, he was born on the wrong side of the tracks. He left the throne on the right side to be born in a barn on the wrong side. Barely even put a ripple in the clamor of Bethlehem when the king of kings was born in Bethlehem. When God visited this earth, he was born to a country girl in a shelter with no attendance present and nowhere to lay a newborn king except in a feeding trough for cows. That's a strange way to enter the world, isn't it? When he was born, the only trumpet that was blowing was the mooing of the cow and a braying of a mule. Smell was not of perfume, but of animal dung. The God who created everything in heaven owned absolutely nothing on earth. You ever thought about that? He was born in a borrowed womb and buried in a borrowed tomb. To pay taxes, he had to borrow money from a fish's mouth. Y'all remember that story? To feed 5,000, he had to borrow a lunch from a little boy. To have his last meal, he had to borrow an upper room. To ride into Jerusalem, he had to do it on a borrowed donkey. There was no room at his birth. There was no home in his life. There was no grave at his death. He said, foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. And we talk about living below the poverty level. Doesn't compare to the richness of the king of glory who made you 
and who would have a down-to-earth kind of gospel to come down, just like he did in the cool of the day, to walk in the Eden and provide a covering from Adam and Eve. For Adam and Eve, he came down from heaven as the king. The only way I can explain that is the grace of Almighty God. Folks, he didn't have to come. He did it voluntarily. He came. Mm. And he did it for our sakes. Think of the verse of Scripture. Hallelujah. He came from eternity, and he came to Bethlehem. Aren't you thankful that he did? Think of the smallness of Bethlehem. You know, that gives me hope, right? Oh, when you're not boasting in human efforts, and you trust totally in what the Lord God of heaven can do for you, you're the richest person in all the world, right? And finally, he came, what did he come for? He came to rule. He came from eternity to Bethlehem, and he came to rule. Listen to the word of God. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor hath given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I love Spurgeon, and here's what he said. The moment that Jesus came on earth, he was a king. Spurgeon said, as soon as his eyes greeted the sunshine, he was a king. From the moment that his little hands grasped anything, they grasped a scepter. As soon as his pulse began to beat and his blood began to flow, his heart beat royally and his blood flowed in a kingly current. Isn't that awesome? I wish I could have said that, but I didn't. But the fact of the matter is, folks, he came to be a ruler. He came to be the ruler of the world. When Christ's birth was announced by an angel to Mary, remember what it was said? What was said? He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Folks, he came to be the ruler. My question to you today is this. Have you submitted your life to the sway of this king? Well, this is really where it all hits the, the rubber hits the road, right? Is he the ruler of your life? Does his kingship include you? Is he your ruler? Is he the ruler of the seat of your emotions? We can call that the heart, but in the Old Testament it meant not the pumping instrument inside of you, but what makes you who you are, the seat of the emotions. Is it the Lord God himself that has entered into your life? He's the ruler of Israel, not only spiritually, but one day he's going to be the ruler physically. David, as a matter of fact, you know, David preaches way too much. That guy's called to sing, not preach, right? No, he doesn't really. He does great. He's paving the way by that little bit of preaching comes out of him. Did you hear him giving that to us today? You, you stick to singing, I'll preach, right? Uh, no, I'm kidding with you. That's not true. I love a music director who preaches. That's what he ought to do. Through his life and through what he says up here. 
you may know who he is. Yeah, the text says he's ruler of Israel. But is, is he the ruler of your heart? Is he the ruler of your life? You may say, well, I'm not going to be in bondage to any man. I will submit to no one's rule. Well, folks, you're already in bondage if you're lost. The Bible says that you are in bondage to self, to Satan, and to eternal separation from God if this king is not your ruler. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, there, there is not a just man upon all the earth that does good and does not sin. Folks, I think that puts all of us in that, right? Remember the gospel as it was heralded by the angel. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sins. That's the gospel in miniature, right? Think about that. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Sin is the gospel problem. That's why he came, folks. Not because Americans are pretty good people. He came down from heaven to save us from our sins. That's the problem. The problem is sin. He will save. That's the greatest proposition ever given to mankind. That's the gospel proposition. Yeah, there's a problem. There's a proposition. The Son of God can do it. And then there's a provision. He will save his people from their sins. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in this world. There is the person who says, not my will, but thine be done. And therein this person echoes Christ and goes to heaven. But then there's the person who says, not thy will, but mine be done. And he echoes Satan and goes to hell. Folks, it's just that simple. He's either the ruler of your heart and life or he's not. Does he rule your heart? Does he command your will? Does he guide your judgment? Do you seek his counsel in your difficulties? Remember Isaiah 9? He's a wonder of a counselor. And here's the good thing about his counseling. He's right every time. Right? He's a wonder of a counselor. And my personal testimony to you today is, he's a wonder of a counselor to my life. And I will submit to no one else's rule other than the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came from eternity. He came to Bethlehem. He came to rule. In a little while, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ come again to be ruler over the people of Israel. And again, what makes you a person of Israel? Not your genealogy and not your nationality. But if you're saved by grace through faith, you're a part of Israel. And he's coming back one day to rule us spiritually, but he's also going to rule physically. You know what Christmas is? Y'all know what it is in a large part? Kind of reminds me of the story of David Peterson, who was a former pastor of First Baptist First Presbyterian Church in the state of Washington. Washington, it's a Presbyterian uh, American church. He told about the time he was in his study preparing a sermon, and about the time he was wrapping up his sermon preparation, his little daughter comes in and says, "Daddy, will you play with me?" He said, "Honey, I will play with you." But I must finish this particular sermon. But in an hour, I think I'll be finished and I will play with you. And with a cheerful smile, she said, Okay, Daddy, when you're finished, I'm going to give you a big hug. He said, Well, I thank you. I thank you very much. And he went back to studying. And she went to the door. And Pastor Peterson said, All of a sudden, she did a U-turn. And she sprinted back to him. And she grabbed him and gave him a chiropractic, bone-breaking, breathtaking hug. And he looked at her and said, darling, 
You said you were going to give me a hug after I finished. And with those bright blue eyes, she looked up and said to him, Daddy, I just wanted you to know what you have to look forward to. (laughs) Now listen, you know what Christmas is? It's Christ coming the first time so that you know what you've got to look forward to the second time. Amen. Just think, he won't come to Bethlehem again. He won't come to die on the cross. He will come to be a physical ruler where you will see him with your eyes. It is God letting us know through the first coming how much we have to look forward to in the second coming. Do you know him today? As the old hymn says, please don't turn him away. Now the title of the sermon was Born a Child but Yet a King. Did you all listen? to the fact that we sang that today. It's taken from the song called, Come Thou, Long Expected King. That sounds like Micah wrote that, right? He comes from heaven. He comes to Bethlehem. He comes to rule. Notice the way that that one verse says, Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. How many of you heard the word deliver in there? Here's the question, deliver from what? Deliver us from our sin debt. And he shall save his people from their sin. Now here's where the rubber hits the road. Folks, if he hasn't saved you from your sin, he is not the ruler of your life. Is everybody listening? Balcony, downstairs. If he hasn't forgiven you of your sins, he's not the ruler of your life. Don't you want him to be the ruler of your life? Hark the herald angel sings. And it says, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners, say it, reconciled. Reconciled. Folks, how is that possible? How can God and sinners be reconciled? It is not possible apart from Jesus. Amen, sister. Preach it, right? Apart from Jesus, there is no reconciliation. But with Jesus, there is reconciliation. He came... It's a good way to start Advent, right? He came from eternity. He came to Bethlehem. He came to rule. And here it is. If you haven't been forgiven of your sins, if He's not the Lord of your life, then He's not the ruler of your life. You want Him to have absolute sway over your life. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Perhaps there's never been a time when you trusted Jesus. And at this Advent time, you know for the first time the gospel clearly What's going on? We're talking about the God-man, the Son of God who created the world, is the very one who came down and put on human flesh and was born in Bethlehem. And he came to the little town of Bethlehem. And all of that glory, he chose something very small. Aren't you thankful that God chooses the insignificant and ordinary to do the extraordinary? Praise God for his work. And he came to rule. And our Lord is going to be the ruler, whether you ever acknowledge it or not. But my prayer is that you would bend your knee, bow your heart, and would you trust what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. Even in Bethlehem, there was the shadow of the cross behind the manger. He came to die. He came to be your substitute. He came to pay your sin debt. Would you trust Him today? Would you trust Jesus only for salvation? Would you turn from trying to do it your way? 
Would you turn from selfishness? And would you turn 180 degrees? And would you put your focus and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ only? That's what the word means, believe. It means put your trust into Christ only for salvation. And you know what he'll do? He'll forgive you of your sins if you repent. And he'll give you his own righteousness. And if he gives you his righteousness, you have a home in heaven forever. Amen? Given by the Lord. And you're going to reign with him forevermore. Father, would you touch us, Lord. Touch your people once again. Father, what a blessing to talk about your advent. To talk about you coming to this world to save us. Lord, what an awesome thought that you would leave heaven and eternity to come down to this earth and die for wretched sinners like us. God, we're, we're forever grateful for it. We're forever grateful for the cross. We're forever grateful that you, in all of your righteous glory, having never sinned, would lay down your life for us to save us from our sins. To appease the wrath of the Father. To turn away the wrath so that we could be saved. God, thank you for it. Thank you that you are our substitutionary atonement. And because of you, beginning in the incarnation, God, we can know you personally and we praise you for it. If there's somebody under the sound of my voice that's lost this morning, God, would you intercept them before it is everlastingly too late. Lord, may they turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.